Four leading AI companies establish a forum to self-regulate. Singapore's GIC says private equity's golden age is over and Netflix offers $900,000 for an AI job amidst the writer's strike. I'm Jackson Fordyce and this is Venture Daily. For the past few weeks, we've reported on several stories related to AI tech and government regulation. Many people are calling for the regulation of AI urgently to ensure safety and responsibility. Yesterday, four leading AI companies took measures into their own hands, establishing the Frontier Model Forum, an industry-led council whose aim is to ensure safe and responsible development in AI tech. Anthropic, Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI launched the forum, which will initially act as a research group that plans to study and control AI's potential. They say one of their goals is to streamline communication between the industry and policymakers. To better understand the Frontier Model Forum and the motives behind creating it, I spoke with Doug Clinton. I'm Doug Clinton, co-founder and partner at Deepwater Asset Management. In addition to his role at Deepwater Asset Management, Doug posts daily videos on his LinkedIn informing viewers about AI to help them be, quote, smarter AI investors. Doug, is this a new phenomenon? Tech companies taking initiative to regulate themselves even before the U.S. government can? No, and I think that in general, I mean, every company, obviously, and every set of companies in an industry would love to go the path of self-regulation where possible to have more control over how they agree to restrict themselves versus the government setting its own agenda and mandates. I mean, I remember seeing this early on in the online advertising space. You know, back in the early 2000s, uh, there were several organizations that, that sort of organized to uh, set best practices for something that was new. And I think people weren't really sure how it was going to change the world. And of course, it obviously did. Um, so I'm not surprised to see that AI leaders are taking a more active role in gathering together and trying to create whatever that organization might look like to do a little bit of self-regulation. If this proves to be an effective model, could this be a fundamental reorientation to how tech companies approach safe and responsible development of technology in the future? Technology companies have been so siloed in largely their own paths. I mean, you have Apple and Google with Android in the smartphone space. You you really had Microsoft as the big leader in enterprise and maybe they had some overlap with Amazon with AWS. You have Amazon with retail and you have Google and Meta in ads. So I think they were all in sort of their own lanes and doing their own thing. And to the point of your question, I think now we're seeing that all of them are uh, intersecting with one another in this AI space and may compete against one another more than they have the past decade or two. And so do I think that they could get together and maybe maybe kind of self-regulate best practices around how they build these technologies? I think they will and can and should. Um, Do I think it will change maybe the outcomes of ultimately what kinds of technologies get built? No, because I think that ultimately all of these companies serve billions of of customers and they want to put out the best products that they they can. And um, I think that even with self-regulation and any restrictions they might all agree to amongst one another, I think you're still going to see a really strong push toward innovation from these large companies and ultimately other well-funded startups that are trying to compete against them. Doug, who will hold these companies accountable to their commitments? Do you expect them to create a checks and balances system within the frontier model? Is it enough for these large companies to regulate themselves without any touch from the government? And, And so let me go in that direction because I think the bottom line is Eventually, I do expect the government to get involved in this space, in AI. 
I think that it's too much of a political sort of hot button. It's too topical right now. We have the 2024 election coming up, so we have a catalyst to, to talk even more about it from a government standpoint. And so do I think they can create checks and balances? I think they can probably set up some things, but uh, I think the real probably spirit of the question is, do I think that it'll be enough to avoid maybe stricter government regulations? And I would say I doubt that because I do think it's just too much of a political football that you know major candidates are going to have strong opinions on going into this next election cycle. Can we take these commitments at face value, or is there a reason to believe there are deeper, more self-interested reasons and motivations prompting the creation of the forum? I think there's always some self, uh, you know, self-interest when you create a a regulatory body that is organized by industry. The self-interest is that the industry would rather try to regulate itself than the government. Um, so that's not a cynical view. I think that's just a realistic view. Um, but I don't think that means that, you know, these companies aren't going to be thoughtful about what they propose together. Um, and I think individually too, right. You know, this is a hot topic, you know, developing safe AI. What does it mean for AI to be safe? What does bias in AI look like? Um, how do we prevent misinformation in AI? I think these are topics that have been, um, very well tread and they're very prominent in public. And I think all of these companies have been thinking very deeply about those topics already. I don't think they've been sort of um, neglecting their responsibilities there. And so to bring them together, I think they're probably just going to bring together some of their best practices and hopefully put themselves in a direction where they can do a little better together in creating policies than maybe just doing it all by themselves, which they're already doing. There will become a point, probably sooner rather than later, when these AI companies face a decision between prioritizing profits or responsibility. The frontier model conveys that they will lean towards safety and ethical decision-making, but do you think they'll be willing to sacrifice on profits when it matters most? I think that they can do both. Um, and, you know, we've, we've maybe seen a bit of a case study with social media, and you could make arguments perhaps in different ways on that, which is that obviously keeping our attention with um, content that may not be in our long-term best interest Um Maybe that's a, an example of prioritizing profit over societal benefit. Um, but I think that AI is such a transformative technology. I think about it like the internet. You know, I think technology itself is neutral. And in many cases, I would even argue most of the companies that are creating technology are mostly neutral. Big caveat with mostly. Um, I think how humans ultimately use these technologies, when you think about what is the impact of society, that intersection with human nature and technology, I mean, that's what gives it these qualities of, you know, is it good for society? Is it bad for society? Can it do both? Um, I put it more on how humans ultimately decide to use it versus how some of these tech companies may legislate you know, what is or isn't appropriate usage because humans are creative. We're going to find ways to do things we want to do with a lot of these platforms, whether uh, the tech, tech companies are trying to legislate it out or not. You know, just think about some of the creative prompts that have gone into ChatGPT to jailbreak it. You're constantly going to have people doing similar things like that. So I think that these technologies can both be highly profitable for, uh, for these big tech companies and also be a net benefit to society, even if people do occasionally use them for things that we wish they would. That was Doug Clinton, co-founder and partner at Deepwater Asset Management. Doug, Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jackson. 
golden age for private equity has come to an end. At least, that's what GIC, Singapore's sovereign wealth fund that manages over $700 billion, believes. Their CIO says high valuations, lower leverage costs, and low interest rates, the ingredients that allowed for the private equity golden age, are gone and won't be coming back anytime soon. It's hard to argue against it. The U.S. just raised interest rates to the highest they've been in 22 years. For insight into the state of private equity and its uncertain future, I spoke with Joe Merrill. Hi, my name is Joe Merrill, and I am a general partner at Sputnik ATX, a VC fund in Austin, Texas. Joe is a former U.S. diplomat and also worked in corporate treasury, finance, and development at Deere & Company before entering the private equity world at Apollo Global. Joe, do you agree with GIC's assessment that the golden age for private equity has come to an end? Boy, I think that sure depends on how you define that. I would say on the venture capital side, late-stage venture capital, the tide is kind of out and we can see that the emperor has no clothes. Does that make sense? But early-stage VC is very different. Early-stage VC, you're actually you're investing in technological growth. You're taking execution risk, technology risk. Uh, you're taking risk on the team. Those are very meaningful. And there's a lot of really good data that's come out recently from University of Chicago and some other places that show that what, what is traditionally a VC fund is still delivering great returns. So when you look at funds that are raising 50 to 350 million total fund size, and they're investing in seed through series B, the top quartile funds in those ranges, they're still delivering annual returns in excess of 50%. And they do so regardless of market conditions and regardless of whether you're in a recession, because technological growth actually accelerates in a recession. It doesn't decelerate. And so early stage VC never really has a down year and it's never really had a, it's never had a down year. Early stage VC has never had a down year. So when folks like GIC say, hey, private equity is, is, is gold, the good times are over, what we're really referring to are the PE guys in the late stage VC, because I think they were, they were selling something that wasn't sustainable within the current rate environment. And late stage VC, they're never going to get the returns that early stage VC gets because, you're, you're, again, you're not investing in the same risk. You're not buying beta. So if high valuations, lower leverage costs, and low interest rates are not coming back anytime soon, how can private investors best adapt to this new normal? I think people would need to go back and start looking at early venture capital. And I, I would say that the market has kind of gotten, it's really easy to write a check to Tiger, Sequoia, you know, the usual suspects that raise big funds vision. And it's less work, right? If you're an allocator, being able to write a single $250, $300 million check to a single fund and ha you know have a handful of them is a lot easier than doing the work of writing a whole bunch of $50 and $75 million checks. And so what I, what, what I think will happen is we'll see more fund of funds coming out. We'll have a lot more fund of funds looking for, hey, we're going to aggregate. You can still write that big check, write it to me, and I'm going to go find all these really killer Series A, Series B, early stage venture. Because, look... We, the fund managers in those categories, we continue to perform really well. I guess we need a reminder that you can still invest in those funds. They're still out there and they're still getting those returns. And you just got to get back in touch with them. GIC CEO says that the private market still plays to the advantage of long-term investors. Joe, why is this the case? Because when you make an investment in a seed series A company, you're seven to 10 years from an exit. So when you put your money into a seed or series A VC fund, you're basically saying, I'm going to give you my money for 10 years. And remember the top quartile, those top quartile people, they're going to give you a 50% annualized return or better. 
what's really interesting in this data from the, you know this research that's come out, uh, it's a uh, Kaplan at the University of Chicago, is that the persistence is is really strong in early stage fund managers, meaning that if they if the if the GP continues the same investment strategy and the GP doesn't have any turnover, you can expect them to continue to deliver the same quartile performance. So basically, I think they said it was something like a 66% probability that if their last fund delivered 75%, the next one would, you know, be in the same top quartile, right? And so basically, find find those folks, give them your money, and keep giving them your money because you will outperform the market, but you have a lockup for 10 years. So private markets, they will outperform, but they will only outperform with these managers that continue to do this, and they're going to hold your money for 10 years. That's the price of the private market. That was Joe Merrill, general partner at Sputnik ATX. Thanks, Joe. Yep. Hey, thank you very much. A little over two weeks ago, SAG-AFTRA, the actors' union, joined writers in the strike against Hollywood's use of artificial intelligence in television and film productions. Since then, the strike has grown. Actors like Brian Cranston, Jessica Chastain, and others have shared impassioned speeches that have gone viral. Amidst the petitions against Hollywood, Netflix has just posted a new job listing. It's looking to hire an AI product manager for $900,000. The job posting says that the person in this role must work with the technology to, quote, create great content. Netflix is also offering $650,000 for a generative AI technical director role. When asked about Netflix's new role in an interview with Ken Klippenstein from The Intercept, actor Rob Delaney said, quote, so $900,000 per year per soldier in their godless AI army when the amount of earnings could qualify 35 actors and their families for sag after health insurance is just ghoulish. Having been poor and rich in this business, I can assure you, there's enough money to go around. It's just about priorities. But Netflix isn't the only platform that's trying to bring on AI hires. Disney says they plan to employ a senior AI engineer to, quote, drive innovation across our cinematic pipelines and theatrical experiences. In a recent earnings call, CEO Bob Iger said this when asked if AI could impact and threaten the business. <laughs> it's pretty clear that AI developments represent some pretty op- interesting opportunities for us um, and some su- substantial benefits. In fact, we're already starting to use AI to create some efficiencies and ultimately to better serve consumers. Getting closer to the, cus- the customer is something that is a real goal of ours, and we think that um, AI will provide some great opportunities to do that. But it's also clear that AI is going to be highly disruptive. And it could be extremely difficult to manage, particularly from an IP management perspective. With more and more job postings like this, it's doubtful we'll see an end to the writer's strike anytime soon. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.